Howdy folks, John Fries here. Welcome to Down with the Dharma. So today I'm going to be playing fast and loose, uh, shooting from the hip. Uh, so I'm going to talk about a topic that I've thought about and written about um, in the past, but I haven't tried to give like a concise talk about it. Um, and since I'm not getting paid to do this thing and I got other stuff to do, I haven't really had time to like organize, make notes, bibliography like I normally do. Um, but I'll just give it a try. So I'm in my um, PhD program at Claremont School of Theology in practical theology with a focus on spiritually integrated psychotherapy. And uh, I'm in the dissertation phase. <clears throat> so the, the program is two years of coursework, one year of qualifying exams, and then one to two years, sometimes three if you have to, uh, to write the dissertation. And then also included in that I did, what I've already done is the coursework, the qualifying exams, and I also did a three-year residency at the Kleinville Institute, which is a um, pastoral counseling center that um, is in Claremont at the theology school. Um, so, so now I'm just writing my dissertation, uh, and so I'm looking at, you know, like in terms of career, I'm interested in um, being a professor. Um, so this is the weird, one of the weird things is, is Buddhism, do we use the Christian terminology like theology or do we want to create our own terms? Um, are we going to join an existing academic field of uh, Christian theologians or are we going to do our own thing? Um, these are all things that are up in the air. Um, so, but my, since CST, Claremont School of Theology, is trad a traditional Protestant theology school, and now they've opened up to become interreligious, but they, they're they still mainly using the Christian theology school um, infrastructure layout in terms of curriculum and just the way the different departments are structured. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking then from that uh, tradition, if you will. Um, so, so as of now, I'm just going to use the existing Christian terminology, and then if things change in the future, we'll we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but anyway, so of course, traditionally Buddhism has existed for centuries as a fourfold sangha of monks, nuns, lay men, and lay women um, throughout Asia. Um, and then there's been the long tradition of having monasteries and uh, even then the, the tradition of those monasteries, some of them becoming universities basically um, for monastics. And uh, Dr. Lewis Lancaster, who's uh, retired now, but he, he started the PhD program in Buddhist studies at UC Berkeley in the 60s. Um, and now he, he teaches some classes at University of the West, and he's, he's still very active. He's leading a worldwide research project on how Buddhism spread through sea merchants um, throughout the world. 
Um, but basically, one one of his research findings is he well, it's a hypothesis now, I guess. But he he thinks that Buddhism may have been what the the Buddhist monastic system may have been the inspiration for the Christian monastic system. That there may have been Buddhist in say Syria that connected with Christians in Syria and then later into Egypt and that the monasteries of um, Christianity may have been originally inspired by Buddhist monasticism. And then as the monastery system in Europe developed, when the Roman Empire fell apart, these monasteries basically became the cultural centers or cultural hubs for uh, different regions in Europe. And so you basically had these monastic universities as the center of learning, medicine, knowledge within medieval Europe. And you had a strong monastic system that had a lot of contemplative practice going on and um, a healthy Christian mysticism going on. Um, and so then when the Enlightenment came about, when modernity came about, there was a crisis of this emerging scientific worldview that um, challenged the traditional Christian worldview. And so there was a crisis within Christianity. And so um, for so what, I'm, what I'm talking about today, then practical theology, and in particular, uh, Frederick Schleiermacher in Germany in the 1700s, uh, he's the one that came up with basically the Protestant modern response to modernity and science. Um, and so he helped co-found um, a university in Germany, uh, I believe it's Humboldt University in Berlin. And that basically was considered like the template for the modern research university. And so um, you can think of like the Enlightenment as this, you know, another big, huge crossroads in Western civilization, like um, so the fall of Roman Empire and medieval time and Christianity. Uh, and then there's the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and then now this kind of new, another kind of breakthrough moment. So, so the modern research university that had within it a theology school as, as part of the modern university. And so Schleiermacher um, reorganized the traditional Christian um, training education system uh, for modern uh, society. And so he divided up the theology school into three different uh, sections. So one was the historical theology, which basically looked at the history of the Christian tradition from, from Jesus until the present day. And then you had um, what he called philosophical theology, which basically was getting into what's the essential message or the, the essential, the essence, if you will, of Christianity. What is the essence uh, that the tradition has and that it is um, offering to people? 
And then he had what he called practical theology, which was the actual delivering of the Christian essence to to the Christian followers. And he envisioned theology, these, these three different segments or sections of theology as one whole organism. And so he used the image of a tree. And so he had like the, the roots, the trunk and the branches. Um, and again, forgive me, I'm shooting from the hip here. So uh, uh, I can't remember exactly if I want to say the historical was the roots and then the systemic uh, philosophical theology is the essence and then the, the uh, branches is practical. Um, for sure, the branches are practical. Um, but anyway, he saw it as a unidirectional flow that it, it, the tree drew from its roots and then it um, modified things in the trunk and then it put it out in the, in the branches. And so the idea then that, that practical theology is the interface between the Christian tradition and Christian followers, um, but it's drawing from the philosophical and historical theologies. Um, and so then uh, today in, in contemporary theology schools, they've renamed those three sections a little bit. Well, they kept practical theology, but then they renamed uh, philosophical theology as uh, systematic theology. Um, and then historical theology is still, yeah, just basically like church history or, yeah, the history of the tradition. And then, so practical theology, he subdivided into religious education, spiritual formation, and uh, spiritual care. And so uh, at Claremont School of Theology and other Protestant theology schools around the country in the U.S., um, also within Europe in Protestant theology schools, um, you'll have this structure that's very common. And so then the, yeah, practical theology, then religious education um, and spiritual formation has also has tended to kind of group together and then spiritual care has tended to be its own thing. And then within spiritual care, you have, um, basically you have uh, training for chaplaincy. Uh, you have general training for say, if someone was gonna become a Christian minister and they learn how to do um, spiritual or what they call pastoral counseling, but only like short term, like maybe six sessions um, or like crisis intervention. And then you have um, pastoral psychotherapy or now sometimes called spiritually integrated psychotherapy. And that gets into the real like uh, long-term one-on-one kind of counseling. Um, but also spiritual care also means if you're a minister in a church that it would also mean, yeah, how do you offer spiritual care through the congregation as a whole? Like how can the congregation as a whole be spiritual care? And also it's kind of like the religious education and spiritual form formation kind of blends together with spiritual care in the actual practice of being a minister because you could argue that like say someone giving a sermon in the church is a, is a practice of spiritual care or um, the liturgy and the ritual could also be seen as 
also providing a form of spiritual care. Um, so for Buddhism right now, if you, the, you know, the tradition is if you want to make a living in Buddhism now, one way to do it is to become a monk or a nun. And even in the United States, um, that's possible to do that. You could say become a monk or nun with Thich Nhat Hanh or, um, yeah, other traditions within the United States, like say the Thai forest tradition that Tani Sarabiku is in, in, uh, part of, or um, so he's at Wat Meta or Meta Forest Monastery near San Diego, or you could um, Abayagiri, which is up in Northern California, or um, uh, Bhante Gunaratna in West Virginia at the Bhavana Society. So if you wanted to be a full-time Buddhist and you're okay being a monk or a nun, which means you have to follow those rules, uh, you can actually do that. You can um, live, make a living doing that. Um, but if you are a lay person who wants to make a living in Buddhism, that right now is very challenging to do. There is no infrastructure set up really for that. So as compared to uh, Christianity, like say if you um, want to become a Catholic priest or a Protestant minister, there's a well-established infrastructure for you to get the training. There's a well-established job market for you to get a job as a minister at a church. Um, although these days now, even that job market is starting to decrease because demand for Christianity is starting to decrease. Um, so it's this interesting thing then that Christianity has this infrastructure already well-developed and Buddhism doesn't yet have its infrastructure as well-developed in the U.S., uh, but there does appear to be a growing demand for Buddhism, uh, either through secular mindfulness or just actual straight-up Buddhism, that there's more demand for that. So we're at an interesting time then where Buddhism is growing and needing to fill out its infrastructure and uh, well mainline protestant christianity is decreasing there's a trend of decreasing um and so they are having to close churches close theology schools or consolidate churches like have more than one congregation use the same facilities um so it's a very interesting time to be uh involved in this process let's just say that um so right now if you are buddhist and you go to a buddhist uh theology school uh and right now the programs that are available mainly is master of divinity program so you could go to harvard divinity school you could go to naropa you could go to university of the west that's where i teach as an adjunct that's where I did my MDiv. Um, the, uh, I forget the exact name. There's a Buddhist MDiv program up in the Bay Area. Um, so they offer the traditional three-year Master of Divinity degree. That's They're basically using the curriculum from Christianity as the template. So it's a 72-unit degree, three-year program. <clears throat> so there's Buddhists doing that now. Um, but unlike Christianity, where the main job market, <clears throat> again, would be that you're a minister at a church, 
uh, Buddhists do not have that job market. So right now, the only thing really available is chaplaincy. Um, so some, and in fact, even University of the West calls their MDiv a Buddhist chaplaincy program. So that's they're specifically targeting that career path as what they're focusing on. Uh, because that's that is an area where you can uh, get a job. So that could be basically like when you do your three-year MDiv and then you 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 do a one unit of what's called clinical pastoral education. So like you might do a summer residency at a hospital or um, a fall or spring residency, and then you get one unit of uh, CPE, and then um, that first round, you basically do it for free. Um, but if you do well at it and you like it, then you could later on get like a one-year, um, a one-year job at a hospital where you, where you would do uh, three more units of CPE, and they would pay you a stipend where you could, you know, um, make a living, get by, um, and that would lead you then to becoming a board-certified chaplain. Uh, and then that could lead to you, yeah, getting a full-time job at a hospital as a board-certified chaplain. Um, or you could do military chaplaincy, or uh, in some places you're, they're starting to have prison chaplaincy. Uh, some places there's like universities. Uh, these are very few and far between, but those are uh, jobs that are there as um, education chaplain, like you're a chaplain at a university. <clears throat> So right now, that's kind of the foothold for non-monastic uh, people who want to uh, make a living as a Buddhist. Um, and then, so the problem is that these are very tough jobs and there's a high burnout rate. And so like, you know, if you're in a hospital all day going around visiting patients, that's like a high burnout rate. So it's a hard job to do. Um, and it's different from, say, like you're a minister at a church and somebody in your congregation gets sick and goes to the hospital. So you go and visit that one person, but you're not spending your whole day visiting the hospital. So um, being a minister then would be like a more well-rounded job and less burnout. Um, and I mean, for some people, I think they have a calling and they actually do enjoy doing a full-time healthcare chaplaincy job and they for whatever reason they're built for that and they don't burn out so that's cool um but for those who are not able to do that or they're just not as interested in that um right now this there's not okay so there's not a lot of uh, buddhist churches so to speak that are hiring buddhist ministers uh that's not happening yet and so what I'm interested in is, is it possible for us to look at the Christian infrastructure, the Protestant infrastructure, and can we make use of that, either, you know, create our own or work with existing Protestant institutions to have, um, you know, basically share, share the institutions and uh, create a Buddhist version of what they're already doing there. Um, so I think that that is an area where we could possibly uh, expand the infrastructure in terms of the training and then also like explore how could we expand the Buddhist job market um, so instead of just chaplaincy what if 
um, one, one thing that I'm interested in and I've already started talking to people about is um, creating some kind of pastoral counseling association where we could um, spell out what the training requirements are to be a Buddhist counselor um, in terms of like, you know, what do you need in terms of education? What do you need in terms of your own contemplative practice? What do you need in terms of your own um, uh, therapy or counseling for yourself? And then, um, yeah, what do you need in terms of like some kind of supervised training, uh, clinical training? And then um, what do you need in terms of like uh, a society that has an ethical code of conduct and accountability system and um, a professional organization where where we can support each other and and um, come together as a as a trade guild basically um, so I see that as as a possible way forward that we could expand from chaplaincy into Buddhist care and counseling. So, so again, uh, Schleiermacher, he divided practical theology into religious education, spiritual formation, and spiritual care and counseling. And so right now, Buddhism spiritual care is just chaplaincy, but what if we expanded to uh, spiritual care and counseling, meaning um, community chaplaincy, like people uh, working in the community, visiting elderly people at their homes, um, um, working in different environments in the community. Uh, what if we were able to provide short-term counseling, either in person or online? And also, what if we were able to provide long-term counseling um, that was affordable, but uh, yeah, a person could make a living doing it, and um, it would provide a really uh, quality service to to the public. So, so, so that's kind of just like this kind of big picture looking at things. Uh, and so, I know a lot of people listening to this show are people that are also interested in doing this kind of thing. Um, either we've we've interacted personally, or um, you're just. Uh, somebody maybe who's doing a Buddhist MDiv or uh, yeah you're someone who's been a Buddhist practitioner for a long time but you want to learn you want to figure out how could you more directly do what you do as a Buddhist as opposed to say a religious studies professor or someone who's got a psychology license but um, is limited by psychology in terms of like how religious can you be in your counseling um, so so my general idea is, okay, this, this does seem to be an emerging field. There does seem to be people that are interested in doing this, and I'm guessing that there would actually be demand for it. We could make a go of it. Um, and so then that's why then I'm interested then in looking at this Christian infrastructure uh, and the history of the Christian infrastructure, and in particular the practical theology part of it. Um, and so then how, how can we use that? So... Okay, so Schleiermacher then, in the 1700s, basically, there was this crisis of, you know, science and the Enlightenment challenging the traditional worldview of the church. 
And so, um, you know, like finding out that the world is, uh, the earth is round, not flat, finding out that the sun's at the center of the solar system, not the earth, uh, finding out that the earth is much older than the Bible says it is, finding out that evolution is real as opposed to Darwin. Um, so this is a crisis then of the truth claims of the church. And so um, Schleiermacher, he, he basically charted a middle way between dogmatic Christian truth claims as, and as well as uh, scientific materialism. So Schleiermacher, when he talked about what's the essence of what a minister does, um, he talked about uh, Christian feeling. And he was very specific about this, that he said um, the essence of Christianity is to support people to feel or experience this Christian feeling and what this Christian feeling is, is the experience of absolute dependence on a ground from which the self-consciousness arises. So just your experience of existing, being uh, a person, being an individual that's uh, alive is an experience that he saw as manifesting from some kind of ground and that we are absolutely dependent on that ground and so for him, God is that ground from which the experience of, of individual consciousness arises. And then he saw Jesus as the person who had perfected the Christian feeling. Like he had, Jesus was able to open up to that experience of complete dependence on this ground uh, more than anybody else. And so he was more surrendered or more deeply one with this ground uh, from which consciousness is arising. And so then, and what Schleiermacher would talk about, what a minister does in a church is that he's basically talking about his own experience of that Christian feeling, that dependence on that ground, as a way to resonate with other people, their own experience of that Christian feeling, and so that they can get more deeply in touch with this ground. And then he saw um, pastoral counseling as like if somebody is a member of the church and then for some reason they get upset about the church or they want to leave the church, that the job of the minister is to help that person uh, work through whatever they're working through. And then if it's good for them to reconnect with the church and stay in the congregation, stay in the church. So the overall idea is that the, that being a member of the church, you know, participating in the sacraments and all that, um, and then supporting each other in that Christian feeling, that that that's the job that the church is doing. And so it's interesting, actually, that this idea of uh, this ground of being, this opening up to this ground of being, is very resonant with Buddhism, actually. Um, especially Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings on the eight consciousnesses where there's this store consciousness or ground consciousness and that's the ground for uh, the body and mind to manifest as well as the objects of uh, perception like sounds, sights, smells uh, and that well, Thich Nhat Hanh will say it's like a wave on the water of the ocean that 
you think you're this individual wave and the practice through meditation is to look deeply and realize you're actually the water, the ground from which the wave is manifesting. Um, so it's very resonant in Schleiermacher's view. Um, so, so that view that he had, that's what allowed him then to let go of uh, dogmatic truth claims from the church that didn't hold up to science. So he could let go of, um, like what I just said, the dogmatic stuff that didn't hold up to science, that could be let go of, but uh, Schleiermacher also did not succumb to the scientific materialism that was also uh, prevalent or beginning to rise uh, during his time. And so then he's, he's, he's not agreeing then with the scientific materialism that would say that... Um, you know, basically everything is uh, derived from matter, that consciousness comes out of matter. And, you know, when you're dead, that's it. There's no afterlife. Um, there's no real transcendent ground of being. It's just matter and uh, consciousness coming out of the matter. And so he, so Schleiermacher, so he rejected that. Uh, but he was into the romantics uh, of his era, the romantic poets who also rejected scientific materialism as, or, you know, this hyper-rationality that was kind of cold and dead. Um, but they also, the romantics rejected uh, the dogmatic truth claims of the church. So they were more into emotion, you know, the expression, as aesthetics, art, creativity. So their God, if you will, was... Uh, creativity, art, aesthetics, poetry, humanism, that kind of thing. Um, so Schleiermacher liked to hang out with them in these salons in Germany, and he really enjoyed, he was inspired by them a lot. But for him, he felt like it didn't replace the experience of being in a congregation in the church, and it didn't replace this deeper Christian feeling that uh, basically was a feeling that was an even deeper emotion or a deeper feeling than even what the romantics were into. So, um, so, so Schleiermacher, he basically said, okay, science can deal with the external world and the objective measuring science things, uh, and the church will just deal with the internal world, the subjective world, and this Christian feeling. And so that that was his way then of threading the needle. And then, so Christian theology, since then there's been these three different areas. Uh, so there are um, traditional Christian theologians, uh, ministers that still adhere to um, the Orthodox view of Christianity, like pre-enlightenment, you know, basically that, uh, Jesus is a supernatural being and through the church you can get connection to him and that leads to salvation um, and that and that this is the one way to, one and only way to do that um, and then others uh, which it was around during Schleiermacher's time but it has also like I would say the mainline Protestant theology this is another uh, big uh, school within it or a view of a, a worldview I guess you could say is um, basically it accepts scientific materialism and so it 
sees Jesus then as an example of someone who is a moral, uh, a moral, um, like champion, someone to look to as a model for how to live a moral life in terms of social justice and compassion and, um, um, and so then, so that school of thought within mainline Protestant theology is basically saying, yeah, scientific materialism is real. Uh, and so then what we really need to do is focus on Jesus's um, prophetic teachings of speaking truth to power and sticking up for the poor or the people that are weak or don't have power. And... Um, and so the goal of life then is human flourishing, the, the flourishing of human life uh, on the earth. Um, and that's what we should focus on. Whereas the, the Orthodox version is um, make sure everyone gets salvation and is, is able to go to heaven. Um, so Schleiermacher then, yeah, with this Christian feeling, um, it was, uh, you could see that his point of view being continued by this, another German theologian, but a modern one. Um, and when I say that, I mean, like, uh, well, okay. So Paul Tillich is another German theologian, Protestant, who he was a chaplain in World War I in the German army. Um, and then he was basically spoke out against Hitler and uh, fascism. And so then he, he fled Germany to New York. Uh, he was at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Um, and so uh, I, th I see him as kind of like the continuation of Schleiermacher because his description of God and the experience of God is very resonant with Schleiermacher. So, uh, so Tillich said that God is the ground of being. Uh, God is basically being itself and that human beings have within them an essential nature as well as an existential nature. And so the essential nature is that which is uh, the experience of being itself and therefore is uh, close to God. And then the existential nature is the experience of being a separate self that's within time and space, like going through historical uh, time and space. And so then Tillich said that um, the goal of theology should be that there should be what he called a correlation between existential questions that are posed by uh, modern um, existential thinking, scientific thinking, um, philosophical thinking, and that those questions, these existential questions should be correlated with uh, Christian answers. And so then He's saying then that the deep existential question, you know, like, who am I? What's the meaning of life? What am I doing here? What's the, you know, what, what's the purpose of life? What's the nature of my existence? He said, these are existential questions that arise from the existential nature of humans. And then, but that they are not, they're not answers that can be answered from that same existential level of consciousness, that they can only be answered from this deeper, uh, essential nature of consciousness uh, and that's what he saw uh, Christianity as providing and so he talked then about a, hor a horizontal dimension and a vertical dimension 
And so this, this is kind of resonant with, um, you know, the symbolism of the cross. Um, but what Tillich said then is that that existential nature of humans is the horizontal. And then the experience of the ground of being is what he called the vertical. And then he said, instead of thinking of God as up in heaven, as some dissociated, uh, something up in the sky experience, he he said God is actually this ground of being is what you experience in the in the depths of your being. And so Tillich was influenced um, in large part by Jung and Freud. And um, so when he was in New York, he, he had a lot of interaction with um, the depth psychology. Um, and so then when he talks about God, then it's almost like he's talking in Jungian terms of like this unconscious that you are opening up to. That's this deeper ground. And then like, so that the, at the deepest level is just this experience of being itself. And that is God. And so then, so Tillich then is saying then that the experience of a person, what, what a person wants to do is to, open up to their vertical dimension, open up to this ground of being. And so that more and more of their um, existential uh, level can be let go of or, or connected to or merged with this deeper uh, essential or vertical nature. Um, and so then with, with Tillich as well as Schleiermacher, they, they, they still held this idea that Christianity was somehow special or different from other religious traditions and that um, Christianity was still the one and only way. Um, and so like compared to other religions or, or other non-religions that the only way to connect to this vertical dimension is through Christianity. Um, and so that's a shortcoming they have, but later on, actually, Paul Tillich, later on in his life, in um, some later lectures that he gave, so his his magnum opus was this three-volume systematic theology, and that's where he came up with his correlation method, um, and and that was like still this one-way thing where Christianity has the vertical, and then you know regular human social sciences has the horizontal and and so we're trying to line up christianity with this horizontal uh social sciences or whatever um but later in his life he did say that this that was a provincialism that needed to be gone beyond so um in these lectures he said that uh, we need to go beyond the provincialism of christianity being the one and only way that other religions uh, could also provide access to the vertical dimension to the same, uh, you know, depth. Um, and then he even went beyond that. And he said that we even have to go beyond the provincialism of religion that he said, social movements such as, uh, socialism could provide some kind of opening, some kind of transcendent experience where, you know, in the case of socialism, where you're working for the common good. So you're renouncing your own individual um, uh, needs and desires for the greater good. And so then that's 
also a form of transcendence. So he said that you could you could access the vertical dimension through that also. So then what practical theology then uh, calls that is what they call the revi revised correlation method. Um, and so then there's this Catholic practical theolog theologian who's at the University of Chicago, uh, David Tracy. And so he's he, he looked at Tillich's uh, three-volume systematic theology, and then he came up with what he calls the revised correlation method. Um, and then also it's sometimes also called the mutual critical correlation method. And so he's basically saying you take uh, Christian Christian theology, the theory and practice of Christian theology, and you mutually critically correlate it with uh, the theory and practice of social sciences, and that it's a two-way street, that you don't privilege one over the other in terms of who has the ultimate truth claim or ultimate depth, that both sides can critique each other. And so he basically fleshed out what Tillich had gotten to later in his life, but he never really, he just gave a few lectures, but he never really fully developed it because it was like right before he passed away. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Tillich did go to Japan. He spent time with a Japanese uh, monk in Japan, and that may have been part of what opened him up to this mutual critical correlation. Um, so anyway, so David Tracy, he, he developed this mutual critical correlation. And then, so then in the 1980s, there was a revival of practical theology within mainline Protestant theology schools as a field. And so they, um, basically what they wanted to do is instead of being seen as, you know, the, the, systematic theology and the historical theology basically they're, they're the ones that come up with the product and then our job is just to deliver the product uh, through you know a minister giving a sermon in the church or providing counseling or some other kind of congregational care like different kind of groups or uh, volunteer efforts or things like that so what they're saying is instead of us just you know being given the product by the systematic theology people and the um, uh, historical theology people uh, that through the practice of doing religious education of doing spiritual formation of doing spiritual care and counseling through the practice of doing that 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 can be a source of theology in and of itself so instead of being this one direction flow that Schleiermacher saw, you know, like the roots of the tree and then the trunk and then the leaves. Um, that this practical theology, the modern revival of it, they're saying it's a it's a two way street. So like thinking about like the leaves on the tree are also photosynthesizing and um, they're receiving energy from the sun and they're giving that back to the tree and it's going back into the roots. And so what they're saying then is uh, practical theologians through their practice of doing uh, ministry that actual practice itself can be a source of theological truth and that can even challenge the truth claims of the received tradition so it gets kind of radical then that uh, the received theological tradition can be revised updated transformed based on experience in the present moment 
And so then a big thrust of that revival then was um, the social justice movements, such as the feminist movement, the civil rights movement, um, the queer liberation movement. And that, that has been a large job that practical theologians have done is basically say, we've got these insights within our communities that um, being queer is not a sin. Uh, um, there is social injustice that needs to be dealt with. Um, and that, yeah, if, if our tradition has got these dogmatic claims that try and say otherwise, that those things need to be um, challenged and uh, the tradition needs to be transformed. Um, so one of the real cutting edge people that did this was a theologian named Rebecca Chop, who um, she wrote a famous chapter in a book in the 80s on practical theology. It was an edited volume a bunch of different people contributed to. And so she basically challenged uh, Tillich and Tracy in the revised correlation method. She's saying that um, that revised correlation method was speaking from a feeling that the tradition itself provided a feeling of being at home, of being fully at home, a place where you can feel open and vulnerable and transparent and safe. And so she, what she argued is that the tradition actually has never had that at home feeling for uh, marginalized groups like women or queer folks or um, people of color, that the tradition has not been a place of safety or at homeness. And so then the tradition then needs to have an orientation towards transforming the tradition so that it can become one where people can actually for the first time feel at home uh, within their religious tradition. So she said the, re the revised correlational method was more present moment focused, like maintain the order of the status quo, like basically keep the door to the transcendent open and people can get in touch with it. Um, and then what she's saying is she critiqued the revised correlational method as being too, um, basically she's saying it's, it's basically, uh, middle and upper class white people who are in a place of privilege and so they can sit around and think about you know the essential nature and god and ground of being and all these things uh that's fine for them that it's basically like existential angst like how to help them deal with their existential angst but it's just ignoring the real social justice issues that are going on in the world and the real suffering that needs to be taken care of so so she saw and this ground of being stuff is just too abstract and dissociated and um, so she she is part of this movement then of of practical theologians that were more again seeing Jesus as a moral exemplar and then that the goal really is human flourishing like how to help human beings flourish uh, while they're alive on earth and, and we're not really dealing as much then with the afterlife and things like that. Um, so I'm gonna pause real quick uh, and I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Uh, I'm in Claremont, California and it's been raining all day so it stopped raining and that I had a chance to take my dog for a walk. So 
I had to jump on that. Um, anyway, so so Rebecca Chop criticized the revisionist correlation method, saying it was too abstract. It um, didn't deal with uh, different social justice issues. Um, so if you read Paul Tillich, if you read David Tracy, it is incredibly complex, wonky, um, very abstract, very like, yeah, just yeah so i can totally agree with her uh about that but if you look at there's an interview that um um carl rogers did with paul tillich so if you just google carl rogers paul tillich interview uh, i think it's like two parts and it's, it's this black and white and in that interview it's actually that's Tillich is very accessible, very grounded, very straightforward. You can really take in what he's saying very well. Um, and so I think the reason why he could express what he's expressing in that interview, very grounded, very accessible, is because he is speaking from his own direct experience of experiencing God as this ground of being. And so then when he talks about it in that interview, he, he can be very straightforward about it. But in his writings, it's like very, very, like, I guess from this German tradition, like super intellectual, like, and so then my, my sense is, okay, his training was in this theology school system that, yeah, that's what they do all day is read and write, basically. So, um, yeah, it's like even though he might be talking about some very direct experience that is not abstract, the way he talks about it is very abstract. So I, I totally get why people would dismiss him and as well as David Tracy, who also is like that. Uh, so this is my hypothesis that the issue really is that Protestant Christianity lost touch with contemplative practice. And so that what, when they're talking about theology, it's not grounded in actual contemplative practice experience. And therefore, like, it's hard to talk about in a straightforward, non-abstract way. Um, so we know the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther, that he rejected the um, abuse of power from the Catholic Church. Uh, and this was part of the, you know, the printing press coming out and basically everyone being able to read the Bible on their own. Um, so we can say in large part that was a good thing that he rejected the abuses of power and corruption in the Catholic Church. But he might have thrown the baby out with the bathwater when he got rid of the monastic system. So Martin Luther was a monk, but then he disrobed and then... Um, that was the beginning of Protestant ministry as a lay uh, practice where you no longer have monastics. Um, and then, so basically the practice became just being in the church, um, singing hymns together, doing the liturgy together. Uh, so like if you were looking at, compared it say to like India where they talk about, you know, um, bhakti yoga, karma yoga, jhana yoga so karma yoga is like selfless service bhakti yoga is like devotion uh, jhana yoga is more like meditation and deep level looking at the nature of reality uh, 
that the Protestant Reformation basically collapsed everything down into somewhat of a bhakti yoga movement, uh, like you're in the church singing hymns and things, or somewhat of a selfless service thing. Um, but they lost touch with like in-depth, intensive contemplative practice. And so say, you know, the same time that Martin Luther's doing what he's doing in Germany, in Spain, you've got St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, who are having, there are these monastics that are doing in-depth contemplative practice. And you could argue that they're reaching a similar level of transpersonal consciousness that is being experienced within Buddhism or Hinduism. Uh, St. John of the Cross even talks about God as this experience of presence or um, awareness and that he talks about how if you have a vision of, say, you know, Jesus or the Virgin Mary, you should enjoy the spiritual nourishment you get from the vision, but you should let go of attaching to the specific image so that you can let go to this deeper ground of being that God is. So the, so the Catholics, even though they have the messed up power issues of the Catholic Church, they also still have this monastic contemplative tradition that is having this direct experience of transpersonal levels of consciousness. Um, and you could even argue, like when St. John of the Cross first started talking about his experiences, he, he got beat up by his fellow monastics and locked in a room because he was talking about this non-dual unitive experience with God. So it was even beyond him as an individual and God as a separate entity. It was just this union. Um, so like same thing like Meister Eckhart, when he, a German mystic, when he was talking about God as this non-dual ground of being, like he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he said like the eye that I see God with is the same eye that God sees me with. Uh, or the um, English monastic who wrote The Cloud of Unknowing, again, talking about God as this non-dual ground of being and, the, you know, the possibility of union with God. But he had to publish that book anonymously and, like, in secret. Uh, Meister Eckhart was almost excommunicated. Um, so basically these mystics would have this non-dual ground of being experience that would challenge the official doctrine of, you know, the, the dualistic, like you are a separate individual soul in relation to God. Um, or, you know, Jesus is the only one that was able to become fully connected with God. Human beings are not able to do the same level as Jesus. You have to wait until you die and go to heaven before you can have that full merging. So, the mysticism then that came from this contemplative practice was challenging the official church doctrine, church dogma, and so it got rejected. And then what I'm saying here also is that the Protestant uh, movement threw out the baby with the bathwater because they got rid of monasticism and this intensive contemplative practice. So then even though Schleiermacher or Tillich are talking about God as a ground of being and opening up to God as a ground of being, um, they don't have a, a, a contemplative practice that they can talk about to do that with other than just being in church doing a devotional practice. Um, and also they would they would say that, you know, you can 
you can open up to God as a ground of being to a certain degree, but you're never going to fully be able to merge with him. You can't reach the same level that Jesus reached uh, until after you die and go to heaven. You can't, you can't have the full awakening in the present lifetime. Um, so basically then what I'm saying then is that when Rebecca Chop is challenging Paul Tillich and David Tracy, I would agree that they are being too abstract, but uh, that the essence of what they're saying does have value. And if you reconnect that, what they were saying in essence to a contemplative practice. Um, so like Father Thomas Keating is a Catholic monk who's revived contemplative practice um, using what he calls centering prayer. Um, Richard Rohr, a Franciscan monk in New Mexico, he's also reviving contemplative practice within Christianity. Um, so what I'm saying is if you reconnected what Schleiermacher and Tillich were talking about, just the bare bones essence of God as ground of being and wanting to open up to that ground of being, um, that that, if you connected that with uh, contemplative practice, it would make it more grounded. It would make it less abstract. It would make it more applicable um, and useful. And um, actually, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his dissertation at Boston University. Uh, well, he wrote it in uh, the basement of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in, in uh, Georgia, but he he finished his coursework and went back to Georgia, but he went to Boston University. His dissertation was on two theologians, one of them being Paul Tillich, and went in depth into talking about Paul Tillich, uh, his discussion of God as ground of being. And so actually, Martin Luther King Jr.'s whole civil rights movement, uh, which was grounded in social gospel, which has socialism, but also this experiential ground, God as ground of being, uh, that that was Martin Luther King Jr.'s theological bedrock for what he was doing. So you could argue then that he was working towards transforming the church. He was working towards transforming society uh, through this experience of God as ground of being. And so that you could argue then that it is, it's not abstract at all. It's actually the opposite of abstract. It's, it's, it's what actually gave life to him being able to do what he did in the world. So, um, so I think then that, you know, drawing from engaged Buddhism, like Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Sulak Shivaraksha, um, Aryaratna in Sri Lanka, uh, they, they all talk about, or Buddha Dasa in Thailand, that they talk about, um, well, I'll use Arya Ratna, so he's part of the uh, Sarvadaya movement in Sri Lanka. So he talks about mundane awakening and super mundane awakening. Mundane awakening is, you know, social liberation, social uh, social happiness, and then super mundane is nirvana. And so he said that if a society engages in mundane awakening, meaning like human flourishing, social liberation, that that uh, creates the foundation or the conditions in which the super mundane awakening can be experienced or the, the process of mundane awakening uh, supports the process of super mundane awakening. And so then you could see then 
a full ecosystem would include both the contemplative mystical uh, spiritual side that's trying to realize the non-dual ground of being as well as the engaged uh, prophetic social part of it. And David Tracy actually in a later article he wrote looking back on revised correlational method he even says himself that he wished he had played up more the spiritual side as well as the prophetic side. He feels like that the practical theology movement got too focused on the prophetic and they left out the spiritual and and he he did not mean that originally when he put forward the revised correlational method um, so okay so anyway again I'm shooting from the hip there's a lot of things going on here what I'm talking about but I'm gonna try to get it back to practicalities of infrastructure here so the the mainline Protestant Christians have this infrastructure uh, with the theology schools that's got the historical theology, the systematic theology, and the practical theology. And then the practical theology is broken down into religious education, spiritual formation, and spiritual care and counseling. And that because the Protestant tradition lost touch with contemplative practice, that that has not been a big part of their practical theology until very recently. And so then um, when they, so I'll, I'll put it this way. I went to a conference. I go to these conferences for a society of pastoral theology. Uh, when they talk about religious education, they talk a lot about developmental psychology. And so kind of helping congregations through their developmental stages of developmental psychology. Um, and then, or they'll talk about, you know, Basically, they they talk about like uh, the faith development or development in faith, and so what they had uh, James Fowler who wrote um, uh, again I'm shooting from the hip right I think I want to call it stages of faith. It's basically like he mapped out he combined developmental psychology of like Erickson with uh, Christian theology, and so it created this um, stages of faith that a person develops. And so the apex of faith for him was somebody like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. So religious education and mainline Protestant theology, that's that's kind of their framework. And then in the spiritual formation, they're starting to open up to Eastern traditions and starting to have more contemplative stuff going on, but it's still kind of early stages. Um, and then the spiritual care and counseling. So I did a uh, um, training at the Kleinbell Institute in Claremont. So Howard Kleinbell is one of these people then that did mutual critical correlation between Christianity and psychology and came up with basically pastoral psychotherapy. And so it was a combination then of Christian theology as well as, um, well, like Carl Rogers person-centered uh, psychotherapy. And then over time now, it's um, a lot of narrative therapy as well as um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So the training that I did um, at the Kleinville Institute was basically, it was basically just presenting me with different psychotherapy approaches like narrative therapy like 
um, cognitive behavioral therapy and really did not talk much at all about Jesus, did not talk at all about meditation or prayer. Um, and so then, like me personally, since I'm coming from Buddhism, I, I, it gave me the space to use Buddhist uh, theory and practice in my counseling practice, which is what I did, and that's what my dissertation is focusing on. So it provided me the space to do that, and I had some supervisors that could work with me in doing that, um, but it wasn't part of the formal training. And so, and I think that that is fairly consistent with um, the mainline Protestant spiritual, spiritual care and counseling training. Um, and so then, Yeah, so they, they, there, there was an American Association of Pastoral Counseling, and so that would be people that did this kind of training like at the Kleinbell Institute or other places like in Chicago or Atlanta. Um, and then, so a lot of them are, they, they were ministers that also got a psychology license. And so then they could talk to people about religious issues within psychotherapy, um, or people, you know, that they wanted a psychotherapist that, yeah, was compatible with their faith uh, view. Um, but it didn't really, it wasn't a real deep integration of theory and practice between psychotherapy and uh, religion. And so, again, what I'm saying is I think because they, the mainline Protestants don't have a contemplative practice like mindfulness practice, Buddhist meditation, so therefore, they're not able really to merge those things together. So, I mean, it's interesting now. A lot of them are like, uh, a lot. maybe that's an overstatement, but some of them are integrating mindfulness into their counseling. So it's like they're, they're buying from Buddhism secondhand. Like, <clears throat> it's, it's common that they won't take it straight from Buddhism. They'll take mindfulness from some secular mindfulness teaching and then integrate that into their psychotherapy training as well as their theology training. Um, but I haven't seen yet really a deep exchange between mainline Protestant theology and Buddhism uh, around uh, spiritual care and counseling, that that's still pretty rare. Um, so so this American Association of Pastoral Counseling, then they, they ended up uh, basically the, the demand for them went down. Like basically their association merged with um, this National Chaplaincy Association um, because there wasn't enough people interested in what they had to offer. And um, it's just there wasn't the, the product they were selling wasn't there wasn't a lot of demand. Uh, and so then, but what I'm thinking is that, and this is what my research is focused on, if you go back and listen to my, say, Buddhist acceptance commitment therapy episode, I think Buddhism has, uh, in its theory and practice, basically, it has within it the capacity to do counseling and even like somatic trauma counseling and that that is actually in the guts of Buddhist theory and practice 
you can look at um, different sutras, you can look at different practice traditions like Vipassana meditation from Goenka or, um, and that it can be actually, Buddhism can provide spiritual care and counseling that is basically a transpersonal psychology as well as a um, somatic trauma counseling as well as a what, what I would call a third wave behavioral therapy. So um, acceptance commitment therapy is this third wave behavioral therapy and it, it correlates very directly with specific Buddhist theory and practice. So we, we could use acceptance commitment therapy as a framework um, to provide Buddhist care and counseling. Um, and that, yeah, we, we would be drawing directly from our contemplative practice, our mindfulness practice. So the issue though is that we don't have the infrastructure yet um, to provide the training. Uh, so what we need is uh, training programs. So we need master's uh, program, like we could, could we reconfigure the Master of Divinity to include this kind of training in theory and practice? Uh, could we create a master's in Buddhist counseling that would use uh, this theory and practice training? Um, could we create, yeah, Buddhist PhD programs in practical theology that are focused on integration of these things? Um, can we create so, so what I'm thinking is we need to create the Association of Buddhist Care and Counseling, so the ABCC, uh, and that could be an organization of, of Buddhist care and counseling providers. And so it could be people doing general um, congregational care or people doing short-term counseling or people doing long-term counseling, you know, or a combination of those three. And so if this could be an association where we have a code of ethics, uh, we have a referral network, we have um, training, like we, we certify or provide accreditation to training programs. Um, so say University of the West did like a two-year master's in uh, Buddhist counseling, then, then this association could come up with the standards, uh, the criteria that that training, that that program would need to meet. Uh, and then we could have, we could open up counseling centers in person and online. And so then these counseling centers uh, could provide a two-year training program. So if you did your two-year master's in Buddhist counseling, and then you could go to one of these uh, Buddhist care and counseling centers, and you could receive supervised training, a two-year supervised training, um, where you are offering uh, Buddhist care and counseling um, and in addition to that, so this is my, what I'm thinking is it's a four year training altogether. So, uh, two years of schoolwork. And during that two years, you also have to do, uh, your own therapy. And then two years of working at a counseling center where you're supervised and you're getting training. And during those two years, you're also still receiving, uh, your own counseling. So you could have, you would have four years of your own counseling, two years of coursework, and two years of uh, actual supervised training. And if you did that, then you would be a certified uh, entry-level Buddhist counselor, and then um, 
yeah, you could work at, you know, accredited uh, centers or, uh, you know, you'd be part of the association. So that's another thing I meant, like, what if we created then also a Buddhist counseling worker cooperative or a, a multitude of those that could be both a physical location as well as online. Um, and so then, so basically then that, that the existing Buddhist theology programs, uh, say University of the West, um, Harvard Divinity School, Naropa, um, that these could provide this two years in Buddhist counseling uh, degree and, and that this association would um, come up with what the requirements would be for that degree. So then that way we could expand from just doing Buddhist chaplaincy to Buddhist spiritual care and counseling. And in the beginning, it could be these uh, Buddhist care and counseling worker cooperatives that's providing one-on-one -on -one counseling, group counseling, workshops, uh, retreats. Um, and then over time, uh, communities might develop around those things. And so then we actually get to where we have um, temples or practice centers, dharma centers, whatever we want to call it. And so then we, we're basically creating then Buddhist churches uh, that has this uh, lay ministry um, that can be part of it. Um, so actually, I see, I actually see that we want to, it would be, the ideal is that we, we have a fourfold sangha. So monks, uh, nuns, laymen, laywomen could all do this training and they could all be care providers. Uh, and then we could have monasteries, uh, temples in which there's monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, um, that are providing these services, um, as well as there could just be centers where it's just lay people uh, that are running it. So kind of like how the Japanese Zen uh, tradition does it now with um, their ministers can get married and uh, drink alcohol and things like that. So I kind of see them as like a lay ministry, even though they're called monastics. Um, so then, yeah, basically creating our own uh, network, uh, our own version of uh, Buddhist churches. And then in addition to the regular university training, like going to a, a theology school in person, um, what if we had um, online program? Like what if it was a two-year master's in Buddhist counseling that's online? Or maybe what if we did some kind of hybrid thing where you could be living and training at a monastery, say Deer Park Monastery, Wat Meta Monastery, um, Maba, which is in outside of St. Louis, or Zen Mountain Monastery in New York, or any of these uh, residential uh, Buddhist training programs. What if you were living there and following their regular program? And then in addition to that, you're also doing this online training. And then what you do on the ground there could count as part of your overall degree. So we could have a requirement that you have to do so many hours of uh, sitting meditation and, the, uh, and some kind of awareness-based meditation practice. So, uh, you know, straight up four foundations of mindfulness or, you know, in Zen they could have the, where you're counting the breath and then doing the shikantaza. 
or in Tibetan Buddhism, you'd have like Dzogchen or Mahamudra, that these are awareness-based practices that would lend themselves to um, spiritual care and counseling, uh, Buddhist counseling. That, like, well, in my research where I'm interviewing these Buddhist psychotherapists, that they feel like when they're providing therapy, that it's basically they're they're experiencing it as a meditation practice that they experience providing therapy as a practice of the four foundations of mindfulness as um, an experience that they map out using the eight consciousnesses uh, so it's an awareness-based practice that they're doing and it happens to be interpersonal instead of just you know meditating looking inward individually so then this infrastructure then we could we could build on already existing buddhist infrastructure the monastic infrastructure uh, that does have actual uh, on the ground sites um, and so then this could be those on the ground sites could be a place where people can do the training and then they could also be sites where people actually provide the services as well um, and there could be online classes as well as online services so you could provide online counseling as well So then, so to do that, then the one of the first steps then would be that Christian uh, theology programs such as University of the West expands the scope of what it does beyond just the standard Master of Divinity. So either rework the Master of Divinity so it has this in-depth Buddhist counseling or create a different degree that's a Buddhist counseling degree. And then expand the um, the career path beyond chaplaincy to providing Buddhist care and counseling and then work together with our networks to create uh, Buddhist counseling sites where the counseling can be offered and so then that can then generate revenue where people can actually make a living beyond just uh, chaplaincy um, and ideally, it could actually be, you know, similar to a church model where it is basically like a membership system where you have a congregation and, and people are members of that congregation and then that qualifies them for the different services. So it could be, you know, weekly meditation, uh, weekly discussion groups, weekly addiction counseling groups, um, weekly ritual chanting, whatever. Um, and then like say like one-on-one -on -one counseling once a week and maybe a group thing once a week and there could be different levels of uh, membership depending on how much services you needed uh, okay so that's just my um, shooting from the hip uh, how can Buddhism draw from mainline Protestant infrastructure going forward so if you want the real in-depth uh, history of practical theology you can go to my academia website just google uh, John B. Fries academia and on that site you'll I have a my my qualifying exam paper that I wrote for practical theology is there so you can if you want the full history of like Schleiermacher, Tillich, Tracy practical theology you can go there and uh, you can get that um, and then, yeah, if you have any comments or feedback, um, you can email my 
uh, Claremont School of Theology email. And so that's uh, John, J-O-H-N dot freeze, F-R-E-E-S-E at C-S-T dot E-D-U. So John dot freeze at C-S-T dot E-D-U. Okay, thanks a lot and uh, have a good day.